eight years. Now, he's coming home. Pull it up in the air like you're going to take me clear on up to the ceiling. All right. This... Now, higher, man. Higher till you hear the bones starting to crack. That's it. Higher! Come on! Higher! Higher! There's a storm brewing in this man. They took his arm. They took his family and his soul. His anger is building, and it's going to explode. Now, from Paul Schrader, the author of Taxi Driver, comes a new and shattering film about a man poised on the brink of violence. Ruling Thunder. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the uh, Seats Truck Movie Podcast. And if you can believe it, it is a Sunday again. And it is June 7th, and I'm very happy to uh, present uh, my next Canon pick. This is Curtis, and I'm here also with uh, – we have a super group today, so I'm here with uh, um, John, my co-host. Hey, guys. Hello. And McGill. How do you do? And Simon. Hey, hey. So it's the four uh, four times uh, quadruple threat, <laughs> and we're going to look at uh, one of my favorite films today – 1977's uh, Rolling Thunder. So we continue. Last week we did Star Wars from 1977. So another 1977 movie, very different yes. uh, tone, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but uh, hopefully one that you'll enjoy. And before we do that, we like to dive into what we watched this week. So uh, lots of kind of interesting things this week. What did you watch this week, John? Oh, I, I watched a lot of stuff. So I, I'm I forgive me for taking up all of your time. I wasn't on last week, right? So I, I watched a mm-hmm. bunch and didn't get to rant about it. So, um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so I guess going chronologically, um, the, the first thing I watched uh, last week, um, we were just looking for something to watch on a, on a Friday night. Uh, thought we would watch like a pretty straightforward comedy. So we we threw on the uh, 2017 movie uh, Brigsby Bear, which uh, was a quite a surprise. I actually went into this thinking it was going to be a more of a straightforward comedy it's, it's a, lot, a lot more of like a heartwarming black comedy um and like a true black comedy too um considering the whole plot framework device of uh this character played by a uh, kyle mooney who's raised in this kind of bubble uh where he endlessly consumes this tv show and even goes on this like intranet and interacts with people and and has like a little fan for him um he gets rescued we find out that he's actually been like kidnapped by these captors he's been raised by them kind of away from society now embraced by his his real family his biological family and uh struggling to kind of come back to society he learns that there's actual other movies out there not just this weird kids tv show called brigsby bear you know there's everything's out there so he learns about movies and he decides you know what the world needs to know about brigsby bear i'm gonna make a movie about brigsby bear and uh i was really blown away by this i thought it was just a really touching heartwarming movie a great movie about um making art about how you can use art and your own passions to kind of take uh, ownership of your life and also of like the past and trauma you've gone through uh, you know, it's kind of like a simple framework, like something like Kimmy Schmidt. But I, I thought it was a really like um, beautiful movie. And I actually like, cried a lot watching it. I'm like, wow, we didn't expect to watch something this tear jerking. We were like, oh, it'll be stupid, <laughs> like um, Lonely Island kind of style of comedy. And no, it was a really beautiful film. So I think really underrated. And I think Kyle Mooney. Very, very, uh, very Paddington. It was a... it is a very Paddington core, would you say? <laughs> uh, sure. Well, not well, definitely not the same. Well, not a similar vibe, but it's very wholesome, actually. And I, I will say Kyle Mooney in particular, I thought was very good in it. I was really blown away by his performance in the movie. Um, and yeah, I just thought it was a really uh, beautiful film. I really came out of it just feeling so elated and joyful, um, which I did not expect um, coming into it. Um, so really great movie. One of my favorites. One of my biggest surprises, I think that one and then Bob Balaban's parents are probably my two biggest like whoa where did this come from like didn't expect to like left field yeah 
you know, you watch it's on Tubi. You're like, ah, it'll be fine. And you're like, wow, this is like one of my favorite movies of the year. Like, what what happened? So, uh, definitely up there for me. Um, man, also, ask me about the movie Parents sometime. I got a oh, history man. with that one. That's a good one. Oh God, that's that was that was a good watch this year. That, that was fun. Um, another one uh, watched. Uh, another this one's more of a straightforward comedy. Of course, uh, the 2001 film Joe Dirt, um, which is aged pretty badly. It's a pretty bad <laughs> spot. I mean, the movie has like major roles for both uh, 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 Dennis Miller and Kid Rock, and I'm like, wow, those guys have really like gone off, you know, off society's <laughs> deep uh, end. Yeah. Off the- they're out the I, I still love the movie. I still love Joe Dirt. It's, it's still it's still got some charm. It has like that kind of happy Madison kind of, you know, it's like they're they're building a house, that framework. It's like it's got that kind of heart to it at the end. So I did actually enjoy it. And I liked the parts where it goes a little like all the happy Madison stuff where it goes a little weird or surreal. I love those parts of those movies. Um, I kind of wish there was more of it in this one. Um, it's it, there's there's kind of like recurring gags that just kind of disappear like in the second half of the movie, but um, yeah, it's really good needle drops though. It's got like Van Halen, uh, Def Leppard, really good soundtrack for it. So I really enjoyed all the great tunes in it. Um, so it was kind of it was kind of fun to come back to this like early Bush era. You know, it's like where Dennis Miller could be in a movie and like no one cared, you know? <laughs> or like or like Kid Rock. We're like oh yeah, America's America loves Kid Rock. You know, it was a different yeah. time, I suppose. Um, uh, also uh, went out to the the big pictures, watched. Uh, some stuff on the big screen uh, last year one of my favorite movies of the year was uh mad god phil tippett's stop motion movie um i missed it in the theaters because i was just recovering from an illness and i was so mad after i watched it. i'm like oh my god i wish i saw this on the big screen it needs to be seen on the big screen well thankfully at the local uh, oh, Mayfair cool. theater they actually uh brought it out for another screening uh just last week so went and saw mad god on the big screen Kind of like watching it again for the first time there's just so much stuff going on in that movie like i'd been over a year almost since i've seen it so i was like was that even in the movie the first time i watched it like there's some stuff like that um like some of the little snippets especially the opening of the movie i really uh kind of forgot about but still just a really great movie i mean just the level of the sheer level of detail and artistry in it just the you know the tech down to the technical details of all the props and everything like and and I think you know some people wrote this movie off saying you know oh it's there's no story there's no plot there's no story but I mean I think it's it's really about like a world in decay and I think you can get a lot of thematic meaning out of that I kind of talked about that the last time when I watched it but you know coming back to it I still really like got a lot out of watching this movie I think it's just a great experience. Have you seen? Uh, have you watched any of the series on Peacock, Poker Face, Ryan Johnson's sort of Rockford Files esque mystery show with Natasha Leone? No, I haven't seen it yet. I'm because streaming. Yeah. There's an episode where Nick Nolte basically plays Phil Tippett, and the whole uh-huh. episode is about him creating his own version of Mad God. Like it's very obviously. Oh wow! Uh, I watch uh, this. Uh, sort of a an homage to Mad God and the idea of. Phil Tippett getting caught up in a murder mystery. So that's so cool. big recommendation oh, for that episode, especially for us fans of Mad God. Oh man, I gotta check that one out. And also I wanna it was great to watch the screening because uh, there was a little um opener by Phil Tippett saying, Hello Ottawa, it's me, Phil Tippett. Thank you for that's coming nice. to the screening of this nice. movie. And then he was just like, uh, I hope you didn't bring kids. Anyway, here's the movie. <laughs> like, Did he apologize funny. for letting all the dinosaurs out of Jurassic Park? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he Famously, did. Damn it. He, he has still the got a credit of accounts. dinosaur wrangler in uh, the <laughs> Jurassic Park end credits. You know that man still needs to pay for his crimes. You know he let them out, and he never 
he never paid for his uh, sacrifice but no really I, I love mad god i think it's a great i think it's a brilliant film i really love the ending too the last half where it's like goes totally like kind of metaphysical and you know you start to think about kind of the nature of creation and life itself and i think there's a lot more meaning there i would say if you watched it you kind of dug the visuals but you didn't you thought it was aimless i would say watch it again give it a second shot it's a really really great film um, also went to the movies last week uh, with uh, actually my local theater, the one in, in Barhaven that I hadn't been to in quite some time, but went with a few friends to see uh, the latest entry in the Evil Dead series, Evil Dead Rise. Oh, um, boy. Yeah, what did you think of is, it? I, I couldn't get into it. But did you like it? I uh, yeah, I liked it. I thought it was oh, that was pretty fun. Um, <laughs> I, I would say it's definitely more in vain to like the 2013 Evil Dead. Like it's got kind of similar. Like it's not a it's not directed by Raimi. It's no, no Bruce. Kind of like, <laughs> it's a it's a bit dour. But I, I I've seen people say this is like a really brutal dour film. But I actually think it's pretty silly at times. Like it does capture some of the charm. Like this is the part where we get the like dead by dawn. We get like the eyeball flying out. There was a, there's a little bit of humor there, and like I kind of wish it was cranked up just like a little bit more. Like I wish there was just a little bit more, just crazy shit going on i mean there is I'm, i don't want to understand it but um i did like the kind of um setting the fact that it's now taking place in a city in an apartment and really great performance as well i think Alyssa sutherland is the model actress who plays the the woman who kind of gets corrupted by the you know the deadites i thought she was really great and phenomenal and uh i thought you know good good amount of gore in it i actually thought like i'm kind of surprised i feel like between smile which just came out in this like we're getting some pretty intense gore in like studio horror like we're getting like you know people getting stabbed kid, kid children getting harmed too i'm like i i'm yeah, like if this nothing, movie came out like five years ago, people would be losing their minds i mean like, granted the, the the most recent evil dead remake is a pretty pretty intense movie for you know 2013 studio horror but um yeah i thought evil dead rise really good straightforward um a little bit of nods to the series too so if you're one of those folks i think you'd you'd get something out of it out of it i i enjoyed it i thought it was uh, and it was a great experience watching in the theater too so I uh, had a good time um, with it. Um, I guess, have you guys had a chance to check that one out too? I actually really enjoyed it and yeah. um, a lot more than I expected because I was sort of lukewarm, lukewarm on the 2013 version. Yeah, me too. Uh, but I think th the reason I was lukewarm on it was I was expecting a remake. And in light of Evil Dead Rise, I'm kind of realizing that what we're getting is these new Evil Dead movies are just like an anthology series yeah. where the connective <laughs> thread is someone finds the Necronomicon and everything goes crazy. You will die. <laughs> and, and I'm actually like really on board for that because, you know, we had the Evil Dead trilogy. We had three seasons of Ash versus Evil Dead. Like, why bother trying to duplicate that stuff? If you can't, yeah. you know, recreate the magic of Bruce Campbell and Sam Raimi, let's take it in a different direction and do some mm. fun, cool stuff with it. And uh, so I don't really mind that they're going more into extreme horror with Evil Dead and actually like really dug the new one a lot more than I expected to. I, I watched the I started watching it online. I think I had a pretty crap like <laughs> uh, webcam or web, web version, uh, cam version. Um, and I, I did like how they kind of changed the location because they had it in that kind of apartment complex. Yeah. I thought that was a really cool concept. I didn't uh, I think maybe because I was watching such a bad copy, I, I couldn't get into it. But I did like how they had like a mostly kind of all female cast too. I thought that was kind of trying new things too and kind of fresh. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, maybe I should revisit it because I, you know, I, I didn't love the, the 2013 one. I was a little bit lukewarm, like McGill said, um, but it might be, it might be worth revisiting with a, when it better. Now I'm excited to see where the next one will take place. Yeah. Like, who's going <laughs> to yeah, find the It could be a different time, time as well too. It could be like a past, go back to the past or, you know, medieval time. Well, I guess that was like our, our medieval darkness, dead darkness. Yeah, <laughs> Western. You know, it's the Wild West. Oh, Western I just, would I be just great. That would be I so good. I just wanted to say too. There's this uh, studio called uh, uh, well, they do, do video games. They're uh, 
six six one six games, and they have a um an Evil Dead recreated, like Evil Dead one and two recreated. It's like two dollars. It's a little bit buggy, but it's kind of fun, especially if you like the first two films. And it's called Evil Is Back. It's on Steam. It's two dollars. Um, kind of fun. Uh, really cheesy voice acting, really hammy, but you know, it's the, it captures that Evil Dead two spirit. I think so. If you like uh, your Evil Dead, that might be worth checking out. <laughs> I got to say that kid is so dumb with the earthquake going into the like crack. I'm like, why did you do that, man? Like so dangerous. It's like, just don't uh, I mean, hear me out. He's like spending an hour down there. <laughs> I, I will say as well too, you know, Sam Raimi didn't direct it, but obviously executive produced it along with um, Bruce Campbell. And actually Bruce Campbell was the voice, I think of the priest on the recording, which mm. was really kind of fun. So it was kind of cool. You know, they didn't direct it, but they were still involved in it. So it's kind of cool to see that, you know, they're at kind of high level kind of, you know, steering it. And they, they've gone with interesting directors. Like, I think it was uh, uh, like, especially with Lee Cronin coming, coming from doing kind of like small YouTube stuff and like, okay, we liked what you did with this. Like, I think he did like a short video with like a robot, like alien invasion. And, you know, they're like, here, try out, you know, do evil dead. We like you. So I kind of like the idea of them also, you know, as, as you said, McGill, like as an anthology, almost series of movies, like different setting place, just with this Necrocomicon necro is like the kind of framework, but also like it opens it up to like a lot of different directors too um, to come in and, and do something really interesting with it too. So yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was fun. Um, mo- moving onward, uh, also saw double billing uh, last week as well too at the, at the uh, Bytown Cinema. They had, uh, it was a, it was kind of like a movie screen horror themed one. So it was a, a double billing of They Live and Terror Vision. Wow. Uh, <laughs> the rewatch They Live. Um, I'm on record. They Live is like what I think a top three carpenter for me. It's one of my favorite movies. Um, I watched again this week. And like every time I watch like a movie, like I find with really great directors, like where I kind of like I kind of lump all their films in kind of a big, you know, I like this one. I like this one. I feel like whenever I come back to them, I'm like, yep, this is my favorite one. And I kind of do that with They Live. I'm like, I think to me, it might actually be my favorite Carpenter film. I think it's uh, it, what I love. I love the tone of the film. And I think it really kind of came through with the admittedly small audience that was there watching it with me. Uh, just because like it is, it does obviously have its kind of obvious, like kind of socio-political slant. But it's also having some fun, you know, especially with uh, Roddy Piper. You know, I'm here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And like, I was just, I was standing ovation. And my favorite scene, which is um, when he's... um upstairs in the uh in the woman's lot like the woman's like living room and she hits him and like throws him out the window and he just eats he just rolls down the hill every uh, that's my favorite scene of the movie and like thankfully like that scene got a huge buzz in the theater when people saw it i think a lot of people there probably had seen they live before so i, I think some people came out of it <laughs> really enjoying it of course we, we you know we did a whole episode we did our junk carpenter watch series talking about they live but uh really great really fun performances um especially that that great fight scene between keith david and uh, roddy piper that what seven minute long fight which just goes on and on how and did the audience over... react to that oh it was great like people were laughing They're just going crazy like... <laughs> yeah and it was it was funny because there's I, I can't remember the exact moment but there's kind of like a lull in the fight where there's like a good minute where they're kind of just like you know they're breathing they're like and then you just finally see roddy get up and he's like ah like runs at him and like whenever stuff like that when that happened like we were just like going for like cheering so that was that was a lot of fun um yeah great and great like the, the pacing of that movie is really good too because like if you don't if you don't know the background of the movie it takes like a while to kind of get to the kind of the big point where you know where we we see the world as it really is through the glasses like it's a good like 20 i think 20 30 minutes to get to that point and i really like the beginning of the movie like kind of really showing the landscape of kind of the fringes of society in in la of you know, like people just down on their luck in, in poverty kind of coming together as a community and it makes like this the later part of the movie where 
we see them kind of come in and and destroy things it, it actually really like really i found it really impacting so um yeah one of my favorite carpenter movies it's great listen to our podcast we did a whole thing talking about it so a uh, great time uh, the second movie at midnight was terror vision a few of the already small crowded peeled out so it was just a few of us i really like terror vision i thought it was super fun it's i, I love my like 80s reagan era either suburban gothic or like black comedies and i love like 50s monster stuff so it's kind of like a, a mix of that um really colorful there's more color in this movie than like an entire netflix series con- condensed um it's just so zany the whole plot with like the the parents how they're swingers that was really funny admittedly some dated stuff but the, I, I got a kick out of the guy who we find out he's gay and he's just like they're totally oblivious to it or whatever mm-hmm. uh, just a wild movie i guess some people i i was reading some reviews i, I think the movie does kind of at once it gets past kind of towards the end, it kind of just meanders, but I really enjoyed it. I even enjoyed the Elvira spoof in it. Um, it was just a lot of fun, really good kind of fun, goofy horror comedy of uh, this kind of twisted cable signal where this alien has come from space and infected this little suburban family's house and uh, comes out of the TV and, you know, crazy shit ensues. Um, really kind of fun, uh, goopy effects as well. And kind of like an oddly wholesome movie. I mean, like it is like, it's got some edgy stuff and I mean it is like Charles Band production but I actually thought it was like kind of like overall pretty fun like with the family the characters like the kid and mm-hmm. and the like grandpa who's like a total like conspiracy theorist he's got like a bunker yeah full of machine guns and he's got like uh, but he just carries guns around in that movie like the kid's got a gun <laughs> he's got like a an m16 he's got a, like a full military like bazooka like he's got like an rpg he's got like everything stocked up in his i just love how they're like yeah here's here's the here's his uh bunker in his house and they don't tell you they don't really get into it but it's wild like it's absolutely nuts but um i love so. the monster in that it's a real underrated favorite of mine just for that monster design it's such a funny script too. Like it was just a really well-written movie. Like there's that great part where I think uh, uh, when they, after they meet OD or whatever, it's like, wow, that kid's, he's dressed so weird. And you see the dad has just got like this deep, like shirt going on. Like, <laughs> like I got, you know, deep fried Saturday night fever look. And like, we were all laughing. Like we were quite cackling the whole movie. It was like good, good, good time. And I loved OD in it. Cause like, he's just constantly air guitaring no matter what, like he's just talking and he's just like, he, he turns around and just watch the TV where you see the monster and he's just like doing his air guitar. And I was, we were dying. It was so funny. Uh, really, really, really great performances. Really good. If you never heard of it, pretty low budget movie. I, I think it's, I don't know if it's on streaming, but I, I think you can get it as like a, a double pack on on Shell Factory. A really really great time with it. Really, I think really underrated movie. Also uh, pulled out the uh, VCR recently, so I've been checking out some tapes. Uh, watched uh, because I wanted to come on last week. I watched Star Wars on on tape. Um, <laughs> I also ended up watching Empire Strikes Back. Um, it was kind of fun watching on tape because you know that's the way I grew up with those movies. This is the pre special edition versions, and um, I think Empire Strikes Back actually doesn't suffer too badly from a lot of the changes in the special editions. But I think uh a new hope or you know star wars 1977 um definitely like it was actually i enjoyed it coming back to this version because you don't get some of those really terrible cgi things like the i told you jab but like that whole sequence is just horrendous like oh, yeah, i don't know Boba, why yeah, Boba Fett, yeah and like i i return of the jedi has some has even worse kind of changes in it and like it's easy to be like oh they're, they're terrible but they actually are like they actually do take you out of it it's 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 weird watching this like late 70s hard well, the fantasy sci-fi movie and then you get this like strange cgi sequence which even now looks dated because it's from like the 90s and the mid-aughts so it looks doesn't even look real towards modern cgi mm. so it's a weird kind of uh, pastiche going on i don't know it looks weird but uh 
I, I, I did obviously enjoy coming back to those movies. I love Star Wars. I, I love Empire Strikes Back. Um, I actually think watching it on the, the VCR was fun. It was the the copy I had was those early mid nineties trilogy with like Leonard Malton, where he does like a little interview with George at the beginning. So it's kind of fun to watch that. And also I, I think like the pan and scan, it, it, it's hard to kind of get your brain back into, but it works for some parts like the trench run sequence. It actually feels a little bit more claustrophobic uh, watching it that way. Um, so it kind of worked for that part of the movie. So uh, really, really fun to come back to those um, threw on another tape as well too. young Frankenstein hadn't watched in so long, the great Mel Brooks movie, uh, of course, with, uh, Gene Wilder playing uh, Dr. Frankenstein coming back uh, to uh, Frankenstein's castle where, you know, his the late grade Frankenstein has passed away and uh, of course meets Igor or Igor as he wants to be identified as. And I, I remember watching this as a kid and I didn't really find it all that funny, but I still, you know, I kind of enjoyed it. But coming back to it now, I did find it marginally funnier, but I actually really enjoy it as like an authentic sequel to Frankenstein. Like, it is like a total love letter to 1930s Universal Monsters, particularly like Bride of Frankenstein, Son of Frankenstein, that whole early era following like um, the, the James Whale films, those early Frankenstein films, because uh, I've watched those fairly recently. So coming back to it, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a really beautiful movie. And also, I think uh, from what I've read, too, they actually actually got some of the original props and sets from the original Frankenstein. So you're watching it and it's like the original uh, set. So it actually feels very authentic. It is literally a sequel to Frankenstein. And I actually think it's a very touching film about like kind of fatherhood and like meeting this monster and, you know, picking a new path. You don't have to follow the path of the old. You can do your own thing. Um, I've, I've been listening to a podcast called, uh, well, I, I think it started as why our dads, but now it's, you are good. And it's about kind of like finding catharsis, like through film and they did an episode uh, on Young Frankenstein. That's where the title of the, the podcast comes from, like, where he says, you know, you are good. And, you know, <laughs> Frankenstein just, the monster just breaks down. Um, still pretty funny. I, I don't find the humor as as funny as some others, but, I, I mean, Igor is so great in it. Like, his little facial reactions, it really, his little fourth wall breaks really kind of um, make the uh, movie. Marty Feldman. Yeah, yeah, that's it, yeah. And I love like the putting on the Ritz number like that. That's a big that's a big laugh as well, too. Um, yeah, I, I I enjoyed it a lot. I mean, Gene Wilder is just amazing, an amazing performer. Um, uh, it's kind of a shame, like later career, like wasn't as involved because um, I, I mean, I think like we, we he's an iconic part of our lives in, in film, you know, Willy Wonka. And of course, his works with Mel Brooks. But I think it, you can't stress enough, like he was a really genuinely great performer and actor, too. So. Um, years right, ago, I uh, years ago I went to a, an exhibit at the ROM of Kirk Hammett's private collection of vintage movie posters, and mixed in there were a few props, and I actually got to see one of the props that was used in both Frankenstein and Young Frankenstein. So that was a real treat. Oh, nice! Was this like the? Um, this reminds me of they did one at the AGO for. Um... It was like a Guillermo del Toro's collection. And I saw that one as well. Yeah, uh, they, they had like they had some of those early like universal stuff, and it was so amazing to see it like in the flesh. The del Toro one was definitely more like props and statuettes and things like that, whereas the Kirk Hammett one was mostly just vintage, like old old movie posters, which was really great That's to cool. see. But then mixed in, he'd have a few like old costumes and things that he'd collected oh, wow. from ancient movies. Yeah, it's so weird to see them because, you know, we we grew up as children. These were already like 50 year old pictures to see them in the flesh. And, you know, it, it makes it feel like we're close close to it, you know, like, oh, yeah, these costumes, like some human being wore this. Like it's, <laughs> you know, we, we see them as so like alien, almost some of these older films. So it, it helps to kind of humanize it a bit seeing this stuff, too. So, yeah, I, I Young Frankenstein, great movie. 
you might not find it all that funny, but I actually think like if you watch the original Frankenstein's, watch Bride of Frankenstein, which is the best Frankenstein movie, of course. Uh, watch those. I, I think you'll actually enjoy it even more as an actual proper sequel to that series. Um, really, really great movie. And then I'll wrap it up. Of course, I've been watching my Godzillas. I just rewatched Son of Godzilla, which isn't a bad movie. People hate on Goddamn Son <laughs> of Godzilla. They say it sucks. All Out Monsters Attack is 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 worse. Son of Godzilla. They hate Miniella. I I like Miniella. He's he's cute. He's he's lovable. He's a little scamp. You know, he trips over himself. Kumanga sprays him. You know, he's in danger constantly. And you know, Godzilla isn't a stepfather. He's the father who stepped up to raise <laughs> to reluctantly raise his little goofball son. And is he the guy that makes the donkey noises? Yeah, with his little smile, okay. he's like, uh, "Well, I was working from home one when he shoots the little I, halo I, I, or whatever." Yes, I had um, a, I had a I had a marathon of Godzilla movies and monster movies too, so I've I've been watching them too. Son of Godzilla, it should be noted. Son of Godzilla is first and foremost like a children's movie. It's like a kids movie, like a Godzilla kids movie, basically. Like, and even the human plot as a consequence is kind of a little hokey, but it's a really fun film. It's kind of like a low stakes hangout Godzilla, which I kind of like. I like the Yun Fukuda ones where it's a little bit silly or campier, and I really. I think uh, I didn't expect to cry at a gut ending, but the goddamn the ending of Son of Godzilla chokes me up like a sap when they embrace. I'm like, why am I crying right now watching a stupid ending? It's really touching, you know. We really, we, you know, Godzilla has range. We don't, we have like, you know, thoughtful, quiet, contemplative, you know, post nuclear war critique, and we have like a movie about fatherhood and love. Uh, so you know, we got we got a range of of emotions there. So I'll wrap that. That's it for me. Sorry for rambling. I'll I'll throw it to you, uh, Miguel. What have you been watching? Uh, this well, week? I mean, I've been watching a pile of stuff. I watch too many movies. It's a problem. <laughs> but uh, the thing I thought would be interesting to mention here is the X Files. So way back in January, my sister who lives in BC and uh, she has a really interesting job. She studies bats. And what that involves is her going to all these weird remote locations like abandoned mines and lumber camps to study the bats there. And uh, she was mentioning to me she was going out to a lumber camp like way out in the middle of the BC wilderness. And that triggered a memory of an episode of the X-Files called Darkness Falls, which I think is from the first season where Mulder and Scully go to a lumber camp and they find all the lumberjacks there. Uh, have been cocooned they're wrapped up in these huge cocoons and then like desiccated drained of their fluids and they find out that uh, the lumber camp has been cutting down these old growth ancient redwood trees and in the middle of some of these trees were these dormant like firefly-esque bugs these big glowing green bugs that come out and swarm people and cocoon them and uh, but the bugs don't like light. So, of course, it's it's one of those situations where they have to, you know, keep finding sources of light and the generator is running down and the bugs are closing in. Um, so my memory was triggered of that. And I went, oh, man, yeah, that was a good episode. And uh, I have a, a funny sort of history with the X-Files because it started, uh, I could actually say, I believe that this September is the 30th anniversary of the beginning of the X-Files. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> And uh, it started when I was very young and it was always the show that kids my age, it was like, I was like 10 years old when it premiered and kids my age were always like, oh my God, have you seen the X-Files? Like it yeah, was like, like a, a clandestine there was a giant, thing. There was a giant beaver ate a man or something. <laughs> it was like <laughs> a little like dangerous. Like there was something exactly. edgier about it. It wasn't exactly. like Buffy the Vampire Slayer or something. It was like 
there's something like more difficult about it. It was genuinely scary. It was an actual horror TV show. And uh, for the first few years, I was just terrified of it, but also fascinated. It was that classic like childhood, you know, cusp of the tweens experience where I started experimenting with horror because I wanted to watch it. But it scared the crap out of me and I couldn't handle it for like the first couple of years that it was on. And then over time, I really grew to love it and became a very big fan of the X-Files. And uh, but I fell off somewhere around the the end of seventh season. And then I, I you know, watched the the two seasons they did, I think, uh, 2016 and 2017, the more belated ones, the shorter yeah. runs that they did more recently. I saw the two movies, but uh Seasons eight and nine, which were sort of the original sort of conclusion seasons of the series, I had seen like a handful of episodes, but I hadn't seen them all. And so all of this to say, after remembering my love of the X-Files and remembering that that episode, uh, I looked on Disney Plus. The whole series is there. The two movies are there. And so I watched it all. I watched the entire (laughs) series over the past few months. Um, (laughs) every episode, both movies, and uh, really just sort of fell back in love with the X-Files after all this time. Um, In the middle of that uh, was my birthday and my wife, Caitlin, got me a shirt that is intentionally wrong. It says, the X flies, the truth is over there, which I (laughs) love that shirt. (laughs) And and I gotta say, like, it was really interesting going back to the series and also watching it in this marathon format. Because one thing that really stuck out to me quickly was how much they relied on the week-to-week viewing schedule. And not just the week-to-week viewing schedule, but also relied on the idea of reruns and syndication. In Again, I believe this is the first season, the episode Dwayne Barry, uh, Scully gets abducted by aliens. And I remember when it first aired, that was a big deal. And it was like Scully was gone for a month. Like Mm -hmm. she was just gone and everybody was going, you know, when Scully coming back, there's only one episode that she's not in. (laughs) She gets abducted. There's one episode she's not in. And then she comes back. And I looked it up. And sure enough, when it was originally airing, they spread that out. So she got abducted. They did a rerun. The next week they did an episode without her. They did another rerun. And then she came back. So suddenly even though it was one episode for me, it was like over a month for everybody yeah. watching originally. And I noticed a few instances of that where you could tell, you know, like like the the cigarette smoking man turns up in an episode and then two episodes go by and he turns up again. But when he turns up again, everybody acts like they haven't seen him in a year. But, you know, he was just here. I just watched him two episodes ago. So it's really it was very interesting sort of noting how a show would lean a show at that time would lean into the week by week format and also use syndication and reruns to help build tension in its character arcs. A lot of the show is really good. I'd say the majority of the show holds up and is still excellent. I love those once a week episodes. This is my favorite. uh, They're great. And you know what? The mythology episodes, which I used to hate when I was younger, they played way better for me this time around. I think being able to watch them in close succession and not lose the thread uh, really helped because I remember when I was younger and watching it, they do a mythology episode. And then the next time they did one of those mythology episodes, 
I like I will have forgotten half the things that happened the last time. And it always felt like I was sort of scrambling, you know, picking up the crumbs, trying to figure out the story. But being able to watch them in close succession, I actually really liked those through lines as well. In reading up on the show as I was watching it, I learned that seventh season was originally intended to be the last season. And then it got picked up again. But when it got picked up, David Duchovny said he wanted to go and like try his hand at movies, do some other things. So season eight, he's only there for like a third to a half of it. And season nine, he's not even in it until the final episode. Uh, and that is really where the show, I think, starts limping along and going downhill. You know, they try some neat things. They make it more of an ensemble show. But that magic of of Mulder and Scully investigating Monsters of the Week uh, it's it's pretty well gone by the time eighth season rolls around. But I think that seasons one through seven and the first movie, Fight the Future, are a terrific package. They're a near perfect package. I think there are only like one or two episodes in that whole time where I went, oh, this is actually a bad episode. There are very few mm -hmm. that are less than good. And that first movie, which I saw in theaters back in the day, um, and I, again, I was sort of lukewarm on it at the time because it was mythology. It was the conspiracy theories. It was filling in the blanks. But watching it this time, I really liked it. It was really fun. They do give you all well, the answers. Some, some of those episodes, too, they hold up so well, like the squeeze, you know, and uh, home, you know, those. Yeah. Are oh, God. Well, all stuff. the standalone episodes are are still really good, really top notch stuff. Anything written man, by yeah. the writer Darren Morgan. He does the best ones like uh he does uh, the one where they go to the freak show and they have like the enigma. It's like a carnival town and someone's killing carnies. Um, he does Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose, which I think might be one of the best episodes of the whole series uh, where Peter Boyle plays a psychic. Yeah, you want to believe that. I just that's realized right. I'm holding a coffee cup. It's uh, X-Files coffee cup. I just clued in now. It's That's how awake I am, folks, for these episodes today. <laughs> Great stuff. Uh, so the Darren Morgan episodes, I think, are, are just some of the absolute best of the, of the whole show. Uh, but something else that occurred to me uh, that you can only really perceive going back to it is that's the show where Vince Gilligan got his yeah. start. And... Watching right. the episodes that he wrote, you really see the seeds of Breaking Bad. There's an episode cool, called Jusuit, which is about uh, these two bumbling idiots who find a genie and start getting their wishes granted. And those two idiots, they're like Jesse Pinkman and Badger. Like they are, they live in a trailer <laughs> park. They are sort of trailer trash, Beep, uneducated man. guys. <laughs> They are they are very, very much breaking bad characters. Cool. And you really start to and you know, Vince Gilligan in later seasons starts writing episodes set in Mexico. You really start to see the the seeds of breaking bad coming into their own through that show. So I thought that was really cool too. Cool, just, yeah. just seeing like these up-and-coming talents. There's so many appearances by really young actors. Like I think people forget that a very young Jack Black is in the episode DPO. Oh, with, the with the lightning, yeah. That's with the guy, yeah, with Giovanni Ribisi as the main the and main antagonist Brian, who Brian, can Brian, summon Brian, lightning. Isn't Brian Cranston in one of the episodes too? I yeah, think. Brian Cranston is is mm. in a Vince Gilligan episode where he has to keep driving a car, otherwise his head will explode <laughs> because of a, <laughs> a weird like frequency, a sound, a sonic frequency that uh, if he doesn't drive towards it, he'll die. Um. So yeah, uh, seasons one through seven and the first movie, fantastic package. The season seven finale really does wrap up all the storylines. 
I guess I'll say spoilers here, but I mean, it's the X-Files, 30-year-old show. Um, but like the end of season seven, you find out what happened to Mulder's sister. You find out all the answers about the shadowy government syndicate, uh, the alien invasion that's going to happen. Like you get all the answers you want. And it has this great conclusion for Mulder where they give him the close encounters of the third kind ending where he accepts that his sister is gone and then he gets abducted by a UFO and the UFO flies away. And you're like, that's perfect. There's the perfect conclusion for Mulder. And then they keep going with it and it becomes like the search for Mulder in season yeah. eight. And it's just not as satisfying. I actually and really then, like Robert Patrick in it. I think he's like pretty great entry. In he the series. grew on and, me a lot. His actually. relationship kind of to, to Scully and how it changes kind of her character. Yeah, don't get it. I think that season eight is still pretty good. Uh, when I was watching it, I was thinking, I would have loved this if this had been like Twin Peaks The Return. If season eight had been the belated sequel where, you know, 10 or 20 years later, they're doing the search for Mulder and then they find Mulder halfway through the season and he's back. That would be like really satisfying and cool. But because he had just been there the previous season, it's kind of kind of a, a weak thing to do where you're like yeah i know we just saw him like it's not that he's big a little a deal. he's got a white shirt on you're like all right welcome back <laughs> yeah exactly but yeah all that to say like i think x files is is still really quite good there are very few stumbling blocks and, and it's interesting the first too, seven seasons and that first movie really good in in the u.s now too they have a lot of discussions about you know conspiracy theories too and it's kind of interesting to watch that again too with you know Mulder and scully that dynamic in mind too i think but that's for me why like the more recent seasons just don't work is mm. conspiracy theories and misinformation. They're not really fun anymore. Yeah, it's yeah. not good anymore. They're it's not, not, really not that great. It's about Tower 7. Yeah. You're like, all right, man, it's lost a bit of its uh, je ne sais quoi. I don't know. You know. Yeah, exactly. And well, uh, I guess one more thing to note as well is that uh, you really notice the decade. Like it is a 90s show through most yeah. of its run. <laughs> And the internet's not all that big. And people, you know, they don't have cell phones for the first couple of seasons. So watching the technology sort of seep into, into the show is very interesting. But it also, because it's kind of this period piece for a lot of it, it allows you to, to sort of have more self-contained ideas. The conspiracy theories aren't as insidious. And, uh, you know, every now and again, there will be a funny episode where someone's like, oh, my God, someone posted something on the internet <laughs> and it's like a big deal that, that somebody's posting on the internet we got to look uh -huh. into this so it is it, it is really cool looking through it sort of through the lens of time like that as well because it is a very 90s series and then after it crosses the millennium uh it's, it doesn't have as much of that identity anymore i don't think yeah. i should say that that uh another thing that i did related to this is there was an episode in season seven with Lance Henriksen that served as an unofficial conclusion to Chris Carter's other series Millennium, which ran for three seasons where Lance Henriksen plays a, it's all, it's actually a lot like the TV series Hannibal. He plays like a psychic detective investigating serial killers and like Hannibal, he'll go to a crime scene and then like have visions of what happened there and, and help solve the crime. And so I also watched the three seasons of Millennium, which I hadn't seen before. Yeah, I forgot about that show, man. Oh, I got to rewatch. I want to watch it all now. <laughs> um, first season of Millennium is a lot like first season of Hannibal, where it's like a new serial killer every week and it doesn't quite work. Second season of Millennium, I think, is top notch stuff. That's when Glenn Morgan and James Wong took over as showrunners. And they really like 
weave in some cool mythology and like give it this this uh sort of background plot that's really interesting and then it ends on like a twin peaks-esque crazy cliffhanger the season two finale because they didn't think they get pick up picked up again and sure enough they did and season three kind of limps along too um it's like the story of chris carter shows but uh it it was also a, a really good thing to revisit. And like, I feel like my brain is just, I feel like I've eaten a giant Thanksgiving dinner where it's like, I got all the answers. I know what it all means now. I know the X-Files. You've seen it, the supernatural world. You've got the yeah, like, so uh, if you have any you questions about what was really going on, lines and everything. I can yeah. tell you. <laughs> You've got Fluke Man. Yeah, <laughs> Fluke Man. That's great. So many of those awesome, memorable episodes are all in season one as well. Like the show really started with a bang. I think Squeeze, I think that was like episode two, uh, one of the all time classics. So like it really kicked off strong as well. What did you watch? The truth this- is out there. I want to believe. I always want to believe. What did you watch this week, Simon? Um. So uh, the other night I had a I had a double bill of pure delight: Renfield and Dungeons and Dragons. Both of those are a lot of fun. Um, nice. Those are the two big ones on my watch list. Uh, Renfield is a for those who don't know, it's a Nicolas Cage vampire movie where he plays Dracula and uh, Nicholas Holt uh plays his uh familiar assistant and nicholas holt is always great he's just he's like so lovable and so nice always you know that, that kind of the character he always plays he's he's you know he's always, he's always got a good heart and whatever character he, he he's playing and this is this is no different um and the movie's really violent. I'm not going to give any spoilers, but I mean, it's really violent. There's some really cool action scenes in it. Um, and then Dungeons and Dragons, uh, it's a D&D movie we should have had 20 years ago. Um, <laughs> oh, is this Jeremy Irons in this one too? Or no, no, Jeremy no. Oh, oh, sad. no uh, Chris Pine. <laughs> okay. Uh, amongst others. Um, good special effects. Uh, there's a lot of call out. There's a lot of fan service, should I say. For for D and D people, you know, like displacer beasts and mag- magic spells, and you know, straight from the book, um, it's a lot of fun. And then, lastly, uh, I've been watching a lot of stuff, but these are the ones that uh, are uh, that stick in my mind. Lastly, though, I I watched uh, Mandy the series with my girlfriend Diane Morgan. <laughs> she she plays this white trash British homer simpson type character where and the episodes are short they're only about 15 minutes but it's all about her getting into something way over her head um the first episode she gets a job at a banana factory and her job is to destroy all the banana spiders and she fucks off and the banana spiders kill 17 people on the production (laughs) so that's the kind of movie that you it's kind of like it's because you love mandy right it's kind of like it was meant to be that you would love this tv series i I know (laughs) so um later on uh there's a i i gotta uh i'll be mentioning mandy later on because i I got another reference but uh those are those are the three what about you curtis What, what have you been watching uh so i just watched a couple things this week uh so the first thing i watched was uh my girlfriend uh, uh, read the book and she was keen on this movie. I, w- I didn't have high hopes, but I watched The Girl on the Train with Emily Blunt. And uh, yeah, it was actually a lot better than I thought. You know, it was a lot of kind of plot twists, um, a little bit like Gone Girl. But I did find that a lot of the characters weren't really likable. So it was hard to kind of get attached to them. And sometimes the chronology of the film was quite far- hard to follow. Uh, I did enjoy it more than Gone Girl. Uh, but yeah, 
I don't know, wasn't my wasn't my favorite. <laughs> and then I watched uh, Cold Hell, which is a uh, Turkish Austrian uh, film. It's on uh, Shutter. I hadn't watched a lot in Shutter recently, so I thought, well, I'll make good use of my subscription <laughs> money and uh, maybe watch something. And uh, kind of an interesting concept. It's about this Turkish taxi driver who's a woman, uh, and she's Turkish Austrian. And uh, there's a, a serial killer going around killing uh, Muslim uh, sex workers. And um, she, he kind of starts to stalk her, but she's like, she kind of kicks his ass. So uh, it's kind of interesting in terms of gender dynamics because uh, she's kind of badass. There's kind of a feminist angle on here too. You know, there's a lot of casual misogynists, but she kind of kicks their ass too. And it, this, this, these, the fight scenes are really well done, very well choreographed too. But on the other hand too, you know, I wasn't, I thought it was quite complicated to like the, the gender politics of it too. So I wasn't really sure what to think. And some of it kind of dragged on some scenes, the fight scenes were worth watching. I mean, if you get bored halfway through, just skip to the final 15 minutes of that film and Holy <laughs> shit, what a fight scene. I've never seen anything like that too. Uh, but yeah, there was a lot of kind of violence against women too. So I was like, well, this is a feminist film, but maybe not that much of a feminist film. Uh, but I mean, it was entertaining for a Thursday night, I guess. Uh, so I watched that. And the last thing I watched, uh, I tried watching, uh, it was a little bit too crazy for me. I watched uh, Tetsuo the Iron Man. This was kind of an interesting one too. Uh, kind of about this man, This um, it's a Japanese uh, surreal cult film, came in 1989. It's about a man who kind of merges with technology in nightmarish ways. And in many ways, it's sort of a companion piece to Eraserhead. And I think there's some kind of intersections with Videodrome too. So it kind of anticipates our uh, modern over-dependence on machines and technology and how technology is and eventually will become a part of us but rather than kind of a techno optimism it's kind of a nightmare too and the filmmakers kind of highlight the horrors of it um it's quite uh stylishly stylistically outstanding um but i i i don't know i loved Razorhead and videodrome but i found this one really hard to watch too it was kind of like getting a root canal without no doesn't help that's kind of the soundtrack of the movie it's like a root canal yeah exactly. <laughs> i've described yeah. it as a movie you endure not a movie you enjoy yeah i think that's it too you know like he's opening his his thigh and there's like maggots and then he's putting like oh, metal man. in it i'm like I oh it's it. so gross i watched it i was grinning like sam neill and in, in a mouth of madness <laughs> watching it i was so happy it's a it's a short movie too i think it's like yeah it's say only, 70 it's, minutes it's long it's only right? one hour long yes yeah, it, pretty it packs short. a lot in its short runtime though because so, i remember watching it i'm like wow there's got to be like nothing left for the movie. Or I, I remember thinking like the movie's got to be, be a short, easy watch. Short. Yeah. There's still like 15 minutes left. Like <laughs> acts quite a bit. Um, so, and it looks great too. I think it's 16 millimeter. Like it's black and white. It looks. Yeah. I think so Shutter got a really and... good, Shutter got a really good cut and they put the sequels on there too. And I think it was really important for uh Japanese cinema because at the time in 1989 too, they, you know, Japanese cinema was getting a lot of attention on the international circuit. So this film you know, no matter what you say, but it really did help, uh, especially going into the 90s, uh, put ja Japan back on the, the map beyond kind of uh, the wonderful uh, Studio Ghibli films, you know, so really important yeah. for that reason. But it, I do found it was a very hard watch. I couldn't get through all of it, but I do appreciate what it did for uh, cinema. And it's interesting to watch, you know, after Racerhead or something, too. But, you know, just make sure you don't watch it before bedtime because you'll never sleep again. <laughs> so uh, that's everything I watched. Um we like to talk about, too, what we uh, added to our watch list this week. Um, what did you add to your watch list, John? Uh, yeah, I'll go quick. I added uh, a few. Uh, one of them is uh, 1995 Rob Reiner flick, The American President. I'm on a kick of these, like, mid-90s Clinton era, like, political <laughs> movies. They're just so – there's something uh, – that era of liberalism I just find so funny. So uh, this one is uh, – 
about like a widowed president played by uh, Michael Douglas, who uh, falls in love with a Washington lobbyist at the expense of his approval ratings. Um, so I, I think it's got a little bit of aping from like the early 90s Clinton administration. Uh, so want to check that one out. It sounds fun. Um, another one on my list is actually one by uh, John Stewart. It's uh, a film he directed in 2014 called Rosewater. Um, it actually kind of involves the show that he did, of course, The Daily Show as well, too. It's mm-hmm. about an uh, Iranian-Canadian journalist, uh, Maziar Bahari, who appeared on The Daily Show um, talking about he was um, a journalist covering the election uh, in Iran at the time. There had been kind of very kind of violent protests, and he discussed his coverage of the election. Um, his appearance on the show actually went viral, and following his appearance on the show, he was thrown into prison. His whole life was upended. So John Stewart actually made a movie kind of chronicling kind of his time you know with the protests coming on the show kind of how he met him and and his connection with him uh so i kind of want to check that one out i know john stewart's made a few movies since then uh i don't think any of them have got really great reviews i think this one's probably the one that's most really well received so kind of want to check this one out and, and see what the the hubbub is about and lastly um i actually kind of wanted to see this more more recently now because i saw cry macho in canada got added to netflix and i saw the little preview of him oh like, it's oh, so much fun I gotta eat a cactus <laughs> oh god oh, like, man oh yeah it, it's funny because he goes like he goes off on these like uh mexican cops and he's like oh fucking loser cops and i'm like man if you were an old man you wouldn't get away with that you know like in mexico yeah we love our 90 year old filmmaker he's great i love clint eastwood i would never slag clint eastwood i think he's an interesting <laughs> filmmaker too because he's you know he's in a broadly america he's like he's a straight up conservative filmmaker and he's making really good interesting movies i think like about he always has stories to tell, even at 90 <laughs> you know yeah so. i think his movies are as an auteur he's, he's generally interesting and i think you know he's not gonna live well maybe he will i don't know maybe he's a vampire he might live to 110 got a good but, fitness routine um, you know easy yeah, i seems in good shape i like the twitter account where like they, they just take there's pictures of him like around town like him filling gas and i'm like i, lo- I retweet it every time i see it but uh <laughs> Uh, yeah, American Sniper is 2014 movie about uh, Chris Kyle, um, about the story of Chris Kyle. He became one of the most lethal snipers in American history and kind of covers his time in Iraq. And of course, when he came home, his struggles with like PTSD, stuff like that. Um, I forgot this movie made like bananas money. It made like, I don't know, like 400 million or something. It, made, mm-hmm. it was like a top. I think it was the top non franchise movie. I think of 2014. I was looking at the box office I'm like, wow, this movie fucking did incredibly well i guess it makes sense because this is sort of like um i wouldn't call it like a conservative movie in the same way as like those like god is back to or i don't know what the fuck those movies are but it's 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 like a a movie that broadly appeals to like americans and also kind of you know it crosses kind of party lines and stuff like that so i I could see why people really love it but um i know when it came out there was a bit of controversy especially around chris kyle too who i believe is actually now deceased he passed away uh, from a shooting incident shortly after this Mm. movie but i I do want to check it out i I know it's got a really good bradley uh, cooper performance too so interested in checking that one out um i'll I'll throw to you curtis then what did you uh if you added to your watch list? yeah so i did a couple things to my watch list i added um Um, I added a friend sent me this uh, really weird uh, 60s film called Spider Baby. <laughs> it's with Sid Haig. movie. Love that movie. It's so Yeah, good. it's a cult film. I don't Roto, know anything Texas about it. Chainsaw. Yeah, I don't know anything about it, but I thought it looks kind of cool and kind of funny, actually. And I think there's like a lot of spiders in the house or something. Um, but yeah. Uh, I, sort of. <laughs> sort of, yeah. I guess I'll find out. There's yeah. a monster spider, folks. <laughs> yeah. It's a sequel to the day. <laughs> so I thought I'd check that out. And then I, um, I also wanted to watch... Um, the uh, Voyeurs, which is a film came out recently too. It's with Sydney Sweeney. It's kind of a retake, uh, kind of a kind of a sexy orgy take on uh, on Rear Window. 
Um, and I thought it'd be kind of fun to watch. I'm a big Sydney Sweeney fan. And I think they're like watching the neighbors. And I don't remember if there's a serial killer next door or I think they just get really up to really sexual things too. So I thought I'd check that out. And uh, the last one I wanted to watch was uh, called The Pope's Exorcist. This was also sent to me. I didn't know if it was going to be a good movie because every other film besides the original Exorcist, I find, except for maybe Exorcist 3, is kind of a, a let, letdown. I've been on the fence <laughs> on that one, too. Yeah. It looks um, good. Russell Crowe on a Vespa going around. Yeah, I'm thinking Italian. About it. <laughs> I'm sold. Movie magic, baby. Yeah, nice to see Russell Crowe doing stuff again, too. So, um and I heard they're making Gladiator 2, which isn't, he's not in. Um, but yeah, so it's a, it's a bit of uh, – he plays this kind of Pope guy. And I don't really know uh, – well, it's, I guess it's about a, the Pope. Well, he's the Pope's exorcist. Yeah. I can't remember his yeah. name, but he was like the official exorcist of the of the Pope and, and was sent around. Yeah. So that's I, what that's, like a lot of the freaking stuff was based on, I think, was inspired that's the, by. That's basically the, the plot, I guess. So yeah, it might yeah. be interesting. So I'll check that out. I might watch that tonight. Uh, what did you uh, add to your watch list, Simon? Uh, mine's pretty pretty short. I want to. I haven't been to the cinema, the theater since the last Star Wars movie, Episode Nine. Ah. And so I, I need to get out. And next week, I'm going to take Max and Julie out to go see uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy Three because we're huge fans of that. Um, and then also, I want to see the new Evil Dead too. Um, maybe one night after work, I'll go by myself. But um, those are the only two that I really am looking forward to seeing right now. That's cool, man. What, what, about, about, you? what about you, Abigail? Uh, well, I'm a member of a film society, and our next discussion is on our favorite movies from 2022. And so I'm catching up on 2022 movies that have been on my watch list for a while, but I hadn't gotten to them yet. And uh, the two, the next two that I'm going to watch are After Sun and Fire of Love, which a mm. uh, few of my <laughs> friends have, have said that they're you quite have to, good. You have to watch the uh, Werner Herzog one as a companion piece to to the Fire of Love. Yeah, you see, I've seen the Werner Herzog one, but I need to see Fire of Love. Maybe I will watch them in close succession. And I know, like, After Sun got a, an Oscar nomination for acting. So I'm looking forward to seeing what that's all about. And uh, I don't want to put you guys on the spot, but if you have any <laughs> uh, standout 2022 movies that I should absolutely make sure I've yeah. seen... Uh, I like I, am, I like the I, I like the black yours. I like the black phone a lot, but you've probably seen it already. I think black phone, my list black phone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good one. Yeah, let me. Uh, I'll, have, I'll have to. I'll have to check back in on that. I'm trying to think. Yeah, what twenty twenty two stuff. I, I'll, I've have seen. To get, I'll have to get you back. I'll get back up to that with you as well. Looking well, forward to those recommendations. Yeah, yeah just watch all the episodes from last year. Yeah, so I'll just, uh, it's in there. time. It's in there somewhere. Listen to every podcast. Fifty two podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, go, go back to the entire trudge, the entire catalog of what we recorded and what we watched and uh, <laughs> something. Oh, I, when it comes to theater new, Ottawa's own Enter the Drag Dragon. Check that one out whenever it's definitely it. on streaming. Well, I, film. I think uh, yeah, I guess I guess it leads us to the main film now. So I guess we'll dive into uh, uh, Rolling Thunder, too. So this is uh, one of my favorite Grindhouse films. It's a uh, 1977 Midnight Grindhouse thriller action movie about an American uh, Vietnam War prisoner of war with PSD who returning after uh, his uh, imprisonment in Vietnam, he's robbed, mutilated, and left for dead, loses his hand too and all his uh, money and his family. And then he goes on a road trip to uh, Mexico for revenge. So this film is in several different gears and it kind of investigates loneliness and alienation many Vietnam War veterans were feeling when they return home and how they feel like outsiders in their own home too. Obviously this is written by, uh, well, co-written by, 
Paul Schrader, who did Taxi Driver more famously, the Martin Scorsese film. So there's a lot of kind of parallels there with kind of Travis Bickle's uh, journey and uh, and Rain's journey as well, too. And the term itself, so Operation Rolling Thunder, uh, this was a um, name of an aerial bombardment campaign upon Vietnam during the Vietnam War. Uh, the aim was to boost the sagging morale of U.S.-supported uh, Saigon, so South Vietnam, against the Northern Vietnamese, so the uh, communist Viet Cong led by Ho, Ho Chi Minh, too. So that's what the... Uh, the two faction, big factions in um, the Vietnam War, too. And for me, this is uh, my favorite Grindhouse movie. I watched after uh, Quentin Tarantino's recommendation, uh, which usually tend to be either hit or miss. Um, I love the raw and gritty feel to the movie. It's like when the uh, burglars shove his hand in the garbage, you can almost feel it, too. And you could say that's predictable. It's augmented by this kind of brutal violence and strong performances uh, from the leads. Nice to see a young uh, Tommy Lee Jones, too. Uh, he's even more his even more PTSD than <laughs> arguably the main character. And I thought the, uh, <laughs> the climax of the film, I mean, watching it again, it is quite problematic. But I, I did find it very thrilling and satisfying, very much like Taxi Driver. And I love how the film explores PTSD and the failures of the Vietnam War. We'll talk about that, too. So I think films like The Deer Hunter also did it really well. But what I've noticed is that many of these veterans are so traumatized by their experiences that they're, they inexplicably try to constantly relive or recreate the, the most traumatic events. And I just thought of that Rain's torture scene and then the Russian roulette scene in The Deer Hunter where Christopher Walken's character keeps... Uh, coming back to it so i've always been really interested in vietnam war history too but it's also super interesting i think too because america kind of continues to return to it they kind of lost during that war and they can't seem to justify being there and it kind of haunts them too it's kind of like this ghost in american history so i think they have kind of yet to come to terms and effectively confront it and i think that's why there's always still this popularity with a lot of vietnam war films today and i think maybe that's what rain is trying to do confronting it head-on by recreating those moments of torture so instead of um this kind of, you know, wonderful welcome, like the soldiers from World War II uh, received when they came back home. A lot of these Vietnam War vets got kind of shot on. And case in point, we see what happens to Rain after his kind of homecoming and uh, ceremony. And Tom Cruise's character in Born on the Fourth of July is basically spat on. And this is what kind of Bruce Springsteen is criticizing in Born in the USA. Never mind what fucking Ronald Reagan say. <laughs> the story of the shell-shocked uh, Nam vet is not new. And I admit the story can be a bit quite linear, but I love the journey there. It's kind of wildly entertaining and more psychologically compelling than you'd think, too. So I guess uh, maybe for some of you, has anyone watched this film before? Did you guys, was it new for you guys? This was my first time seeing it. It was a like a big sort of gap in my grindhouse movie knowledge because I've known about it forever. Basically, I knew that Tarantino was a huge fan of it. Uh, I haven't read Tarantino's book where he he mm. does like a big sales pitch on this, but like <laughs> I knew about it because his distribution company was called Rolling yeah. Thunder, yeah. and uh, but I had just never gotten around to it. Um, Curtis, I mean, you and I used to write for my old pop culture blog, The Back Row, yeah, which is back row. defunct, but still up. Still and going. <laughs> uh, my, my friend Robin Werder uh, used to write a column called Robin's Underrated Gems, where he'd just talk about like these movies that you probably haven't heard of. And one of his first columns on it was on Rolling Thunder. And so like since 2010, this has been on my watch list. And I was glad to finally have an opportunity to to actually like pop it on and see what what the whole deal was the fuss about yes. it yeah yeah this was the first watch for me too i, I kind of do it in, co in relation to of course paul schrader i think this is one of the uh first movies he wrote i actually think this i don't know the exact order of operations this might have been written before taxi driver even though it came out after i, I don't know yeah. exactly but obviously yeah, he wrote it earlier yeah 
yeah, one of the early films that he helped write, I think he also wrote Obsession around the same time. Uh, then, of course, in his own right, becomes a successful director in his own right. But I mean, it has so much the framework of a Paul Schrader film about like, a, mm. you know, a, a man dealing with the trauma. He's kind of got some sexual hangups. And yeah, and of course, oh, going that on Linda, a path Linda of was self-destruction. Just, that Linda was just unbelievably dumb. I, I, I hate to use this word bimbo, but like, I just I couldn't think of another word. for. <laughs> I, I disagree. I, I like Linda a lot in this movie. And I think she's an interesting kind of foil to him or a comparative mm. character to him, because, you know, I, I was it was because I watched this movie last night and I actually watched a uh, totally different movie, but I watched The Road uh, with ah. Viggo Mortensen. I mean, obviously a much different movie, but like that movie, obviously, you know, there's a theological element, but that movie is obviously also about like, you know, per, um, a, being a father figure and, and masculinity. And it was kind of interesting watching that and kind of, you know, masculinity is this driving force and then coming to this movie where, um, so much of what I was kind of focusing on because like I was coming right from that movie was on kind of the nature of masculinity of, you know, this man coming back from mm. Vietnam, you know, if we think about the history of, of American and, and, you know, people's relationship to warfare in mm. human history, you know, in the early 20th century uh, with the, the great war, the, now the world war one um, people realizing like, you know, war is actually really fucking destructive. We have more information about war now, of course, with world war two, more people are being killed than ever. We have weapons of mass destruction, you know, culminating in of course the atomic bomb being able to just kill millions of people. And especially with, with the war in Vietnam was the the first big American conflict with television where people could actually yeah. see and they, and they lost that to war violence. too, right? <laughs> yeah, and and seeing you know war isn't the vainglory of you know your your great grandfather fighting in you know the civil war. It, it isn't this great masculine, yeah. great great element of masculinity. It's actually something that dying the jungle with the gun spilling in doubt, you know. <laughs> and coming back to you know you're a ghost and you're back in the world and you know the, the world moves on. You're you're a man. You're coming back to your family. You're with your son. Um, but your son doesn't really know you very well. You were he was so young, young when you were born. You you kind of have to rebuild that relationship. And oh, you know what? Your wife thought you were dead. She's a woman in society. She has to get security. She moves on, and she actually finds a really great guy. I actually like that element where like it's so many other movies would have done it where Cliff is like an asshole, or but Cliff's actually like a good guy. Like he's just another yeah, decent. guy that she met, and then she found something. So yeah, he cares um, about Rain. And <laughs> but leading to Linda, like I thought her character was interesting because I I think um. You, you initially see her, of course, as like she wants to just bang this guy who came back. But, yeah, you know, we married, learn about her. She, she, <laughs> yeah, there's that great sequence where she's like, how old am I? And he's like, oh, you kind of I think he says like early 20. She's like, no, I'm 30 years old. Like, I've been around the block. Like, I've seen some stuff. So she's a character where she's got some stuff under the surface. I mean, Paul Schrader, um, a lot of his movies deal with men having hangups with these like attractive blonde women. <laughs> but like, <laughs> she's not really like a very deep character, but the she does shepherd, have a really yeah. good kind of relationship with him. And I think it's. You know, she's a character who's a bit troubled uh, as well, too. I think there's a she has you know, her own presumed, issues. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So I thought I thought her character was actually really interesting. I, I thought for for parts of it, frankly, I don't want to be mean, but I I didn't. I'm not a big William Devane fan. <laughs> oh yeah. Kind of boring, so I actually liked her a little bit in this <laughs> compared to him. He's kind of a hard. Yeah, he's he's, like, got, he's, got, he's got that like eagle eagle nose, like beaky nose, and I'm like he's gonna bite me or something. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you guys say that. So. Uh, I grew up watching a lot. Of, I'm, I'm older than you guys, so I saw Devane on TV and a the lot Mar of Marathon crappy, Man, yeah, the crappy uh, shows. I don't think he was a Marathon Man. Wasn't that Dustin Hoffman? But he was a he played like uh, he was one of the bad guys. Oh, the, okay. Yeah. So he always was kind of like a cheeseball kind of actor to me. <laughs> like, he always was in like made for TV movies. But when I saw him in this, my 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 opinion of him as an actor really changed. Mm. Uh, he does a good job. 
Yeah, because this one was supposed to be the one that launched his career, but unfortunately, uh, it kind of backfired. Maybe, I don't know, we'll I'll have to talk about that too. But I mean, it was actually a breakthrough for uh, young Tommy Lee Jones. You know, he's here. He doesn't have that yeah. haggard, kind of wrinkly face. He's He's got he's that unibrow. He doesn't look all leathery. He's a, ba- he's a babe. Really he's younger yeah. than me, damn it. He's, he's a, uh, he he's looks very young. Yeah. You know, so I always think of him in like, you know, Batman Forever with that kind of crinkly, haggard face, you know, but here he's like really young. So <laughs> kind of an interesting and he's more kind of arguably shell shocked than, uh, yeah. than Rain's character, too. He like smiles. I'll grab when, my gear. Yeah, I grab my gear smiling. And he's like, it's like, what? Well, he's like, when do you come back for dinner? He just keeps walking. And I'm like, man, he's he's gone. <laughs> you know? But uh, what did you? Yeah, I guess, you know, I think um, you kind of answered that already, John. But what did you guys think of uh, William Devane as kind of a lead man? Did you think it was worked or do you think? It didn't work so much because I, I mean, I don't I agree with you, John. I don't I don't uh, I mean, I think he's a good actor, but I just I don't get that warm, fuzzy feeling from him, to be honest. Well, I, mean, I, I think compared to like De Niro and Taxi Driver, yeah. I think it's a much more complex and engaging performance yeah. um, playing someone again, someone who's shell shocked, kind of like an antihero. I don't know. I, I wasn't particularly that into William Devane's uh, character in this, but mm-hmm. I, I do think overall, though, I think he does sell some of it. Like the fact that, especially that first scene where he sits down and his wife really kind of lays it on him, and yeah. um, there's almost a bit of like tension, like the horror, where you're like, "Is he going to snap? Is he going to punch?" Like I was kind of yeah. waiting for that moment. And then he, sna- he doesn't and he come snaps, because he's he so with Linda. He's so, <laughs> he's so broken down. He's so kind of destroyed. Um, so I think he kind of handles that quite a quiet pain well. Um, I don't know if it really manifested all that well throughout the movie. I, I found like some of the plot was a bit uh, meandering, mm. but I, I thought it, that that part of it was very good. I got a little My thoughts too. on. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, this is real. This is pretty quick. A little tidbit that's going to blow your mind. So in the movie Mandy with Nicolas Cage, one of my favorite movies, <laughs> um, there, there's the there's the macaroni and cheese by the Cheddar Goblin. Well, the macaroni and cheese is is created by is is a, made by a company called Devane. Interesting. Oh, wow. And Mandy is a movie about revenge after the guy's wife gets killed and he goes ah. on revenge. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's cool. So <laughs> th- there's no mistake about naming your macaroni cheese company Devane. Yeah, <laughs> and, cool. and you also see a box of the, the box of the mac and cheese in um in Bill Duke's uh little 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 little, uh, little uh, caravan. Uh, oh, anyways, uh, so th- th- there's a connection there between wow, Mandy cool. and Rolling Thunder. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, McGill, please uh, continue. Oh, don't apologize. Stuff. Any excuse to bring up Mandy is a good one in my <laughs> books because I love that movie too. My thoughts on it, I, I have been having a, a real struggle lately in reviewing movies because it's always tempting to talk about what a movie isn't versus mm-hmm. what it is. You know, I'm trying to judge movies based on what they are, not what I wish they were, not what they're not. Obviously, with the Paul Schrader connection and also sort of the the pacing of the movie, Taxi Driver is a very easy comparison to reach to. So my opinion of Devane, like, I think he's good as this main character, but I think just the way the movie is done, he's meant to be very cold, right? Mm-hmm. Like, this yeah. is a broken man and yeah. unlike Taxi Driver, we don't get any insight into his in- internal monologue. Yeah, we just, see, the fl- like, we just have the flashbacks, yeah. I'd love to see a fan edit of Taxi Driver that takes out the voiceover to see if it would actually work as well without that voiceover. Because, yeah, true. you know, Travis Bickle is just such a cold, solitary character mm-hmm. that without that voiceover, maybe we wouldn't connect to him in the same and, way and the score as well too like the taxi driver has the swing and jazzy smoky exactly. score and this one it's 
it's very quiet throughout most of its runtime. There's almost no, I can't, I can't recall. I think maybe the, the ending, there's basically no score in this. Well, there's that great, like John Denver-esque, like San Antonio, right. I'm coming <laughs> up. Like that's, I, that, that's great. I love that. But that's so. what I'm getting at is uh, because we don't have those elements the way we do in something like Taxi Driver, it's just, it's harder to connect with yeah. Devane's character. Mm. And so what I found myself kind of like itching for as I was watching it that never occurred is I wanted them to sort of make up for the coldness of the character by being even more brutal. I kept waiting yeah. for even more blood. You know, Curtis, yeah, you mentioned I, they stick I, his hand in the yeah, garbage I actually disposal. Thought they were supposed to be more gory. You don't I think, see it. I think they were going to show it originally, but it was too graphic for the test audiences. But I would have liked yeah. I read about that, and yeah. I kept... This is what I'm saying, like, I try not to judge a movie by what it isn't. But after mm. reading that in the original cut, you do see his hand get obliterated in the garbage disposal, and they removed it for being too disturbing, I just kept going... But I want to see that. I want to see that version. I want to that's see too it shock, too bloodier and more grindhouse. Than <laughs> that's what I'm, a, I... I'm a gore hound, but I don't want to see that. I well, hate that's... garbage disposals. It's a nightmare. Yeah. That's a that's an American thing. We don't have that in Canada. Everyone, everyone in every household in America has like a dangerous blade <laughs> machine in their gar in their sink. We, we, don't, we just have garbage cans. We're not as involved as you guys are. Whenever I see it in a movie, I'm like, what the fuck is a garbage disposal? I'm like, I, is this a real thing? But no, it is. But, but I did, uh, I did like him, uh, William Devane or William Devane as like this, like simmering. You know, he's like a pot that's going to boil over. You yeah, can pressure tell cooker. Yeah, that there's that that simmering energy there, just waiting for that bloody finale. Highest point. <laughs> I really like the kind of hand to hand scenes, this. like when yeah. he has the, the when he's in the pool hall and he's just like the way the camera's shooting him. Like he's just, it looks so desperate. Like he's swinging it and like the fighting itself. It's not, it's not, it's not as coordinated. It's just like a lot of, you know, this visceral, like emotional, physical reactions of characters just being flung at him. And um, I think that part of it worked. It's kind of interesting that we're talking about the fact that like, we wish there's a little bit more gory and violent. Cause mm -hmm. you know, you think about, of course, Tarantino, obviously inspired by this movie. I think in my opinion, kind of upsells this movie a lot in his, in his writing about it, but like, it's the best um, I've ever seen my life. <laughs> yeah, well, all right, man. Like, cool. You didn't like Firewalk with me when you love this movie. Yeah. Teach their own. But um, I will say like, you know, the ending of this movie, especially like where we kind of get that, like, you know, all right, like we're going to go after them sequence when it's just pure yeah. gun, gunfire and, and they're going after them. You know, obviously you can see that a lot of that influence on Tarantino stuff is like kind of revenge themed mm -hmm. works of characters finally embracing that violence. Um, you know, a lot of his Tarantino stuff isn't all that gory either. Like there's a lot of assumed gore. Like I remember as a kid, a like, dialogue. my parents yeah. would, my parents, like I watched all the Friday the 13th and shit, but like my parents were like, I don't know if you should watch Pulp Fiction. It's pretty, and well, I even, watched them like, it's violent, but it's not really like that Even like Reservoir Dogs, they, there's they a lot of assumed gore. They, they don't show you cut off as zero too, right? easy is what it is. Yeah. It's lurid is that Tarantino vibe. I think that's why, yeah. like I remember my parents as well being like, I know you shouldn't watch Pulp Fiction. You're too young. But I think it's because of that, because it's very like in your face with yeah. how sleazy and mean it is, even yeah, if it's the, not super. The tradition gory. of exploitation filmmaking of you know shocking and disturbing an audience uh, first and foremost. Shock, and, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think this this is an interesting um, uh, exploitation film. It's I expected it to be a little bit more like um, I don't know more more action packed. It's actually very kind of slow and complex. Yeah, the, uh, there's a lot of kind of like. It leads up to those scenes, but it's, in between, there's a lot of kind of like quiet moments, actually, which is surprising. Yeah. Because you have for a Grindhouse film, they'd be like going at 11 all the time, too. But it's even kinda... when the violence first starts, when he gets that kind of confrontation, it kind of comes up, comes up almost out of nowhere. Like they kind of just yeah. show up there in his house and it kind of like, you don't expect it to escalate as it does. Yeah. Yeah. 
and they shoot they shoot the kid and the the wife anyway i'm like what the fuck man <laughs> you know pretty dark right um yeah, yeah so actually paul schrader uh wrote the script originally but um Hewa gold uh kind of came and co-wrote it too it's based on a story by schrader uh, as i mentioned to some parallels with taxi drivers such as the explosive climax and the mentally disturbed vietnam war but oh, i think uh you know i guess you know in some ways, maybe Rain is a little bit more sympathetic than Travis Bickle. As writ the script was uh, already written in uh, 1973, so as John mentioned, one of his earliest scripts, and uh, Gold rewrote it. And Schrader wasn't happy with how the film script turned out because he originally portrayed uh, Rain as a kind of white trash character like Bickle, and it was meant to indict the uh, kind of racist and fascist attitudes in America, but claims it became a fascist film. So he said, you could see Rolling Thunder as a more overtly action film uh, comp companion piece to Taxi Driver. The critics yeah. seemed to, keen to dismiss it as lightweight or mindless, but Rolling Thunder was able to explore things we didn't touch on in Taxi Driver. The flashbacks to Devane's time in captivity, the you know when he's recreating the Vietnam Vietnamese torture techniques, for example, and the scene where Devane asks his wife's new help, new fella to tie him up the way that the Viet Cong used to. I don't think that's something you get in your standard mindless action movie too. And that makes brings up a good point too. Do you guys think? I think. Um, uh, you know, he called the the end result a kind of a fascist film, and he was trying to go against you know the fascism that he saw. Did you guys think it was kind of? I don't think it's a fascist film. I think it's saying too much. But what did you guys think of that kind of reading of the film? Yeah, maybe I, at I the time, yeah. you know. But by today's standards, no, I don't. Because like just thinking of like films movie. like like Dirty Harry too. They have. I mean, that's probably a new can of worms. But I mean, films like that have kind of a. They read it as kind of fascist too. You know, which is interesting. Well, I. I see it as a uh, part of the times, you know, in the mid, mid to late seventies, um, crime was up a lot, and you saw mm -hmm. that in, reflected in movies like Death Wish, Dirty yeah, Harry, sle sleazy eighties New York. <laughs> yeah, so I think you're kind of seeing uh, kind of two genres merge here. You get the the P PTSD uh, Vietnam story meeting, you know, crime ridden uh, America late seventies. Yeah. that's how i saw it i kind of have a note about it um also want to add to the, the grindhouse uh look of everything that the film is grainy it's super grainy yeah and then also uh typical of the 70s is no no bras and 70s boobs yeah everywhere <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, they even say the that movie. too they're like we don't wear bras anymore it's a 1970s no, no bra. Like, i love all those nods where it's like he's like a man at a time it's like yeah we don't wear bras anymore man it's the, it's the swing in 70s and then she's <laughs> like do you know what a groupie is like i don't have that terminology it's like man this guy's like fucking 1950s in the rocks, <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, he's like pulled out of Leave It to Beaver and back in modern America, and you know, oil crisis is about to come and it's, all this stuff. It's and like just... that. You remember that, that Twisted Sisters music video where like he's like, I, I, uh, you know, don't listen to rock music. I'm like, what were you listening to in Vietnam, man? Like Elvis, like Elvis was big in Vietnam. Like, come on, <laughs> the angry, angry, the angry dad. Yeah. I, yeah, I do think this movie though has a tinge of. I mean, I wouldn't call it like a just a totally reactionary movie. Obviously, like you're meant to like infer, you know, the horrors of Vietnam and you know its impact on people. Like there, there is a, that countercultural commentary there, and it does fit in with Schrader's other works. But there is a little bit of a reactionary tint. Like I think with Taxi Driver, again, we I, we were saying we don't want to just base the movie based on other movies, but like with Taxi Driver, <laughs> you see. Uh, Travis Bickle interacting with the low life scum and the mm -hmm. you know the crime ridden streets of New York, but he never feels like above it. It's part of like like he doesn't, like <laughs> at the end when he is like in the hero role, he's still not really a hero. It's kind of a relief. He's like a reluctant hero, and that's part of the ending of the movie. And in this one, um, they definitely, of course, put like Devane and and of course Tommy Lee Jones character Johnny. They put them above everyone else. They're kind of like the the masses of gang members and generic Mexican people that are 
terrible. And I mean, I, yeah. there's an interesting thing I read about this movie where they, I think they aired it in, was it in well, Mexico or South hated America? It. The Mexicans hated it. And like it, there yeah. was a riot at the theater because they were like, they hated it. Yeah, the they're always because Lizzie and I'm like, I met so many lovely <laughs> Mexicans. Like, I mean, it's the border towns. Like, they always say, don't go to the border towns that he goes to. Like, Juarez is the gateway. I don't know if you guys know this, it's the gateway drug city. And then Nuevo Laredo mm -hmm. is also pretty rough and he goes in with his brand new cadillac and i'm like well that's he, he uses his like blonde girlfriend who's like 20 years younger than him. like you just yeah. go in there and talk to them find fat ed or whatever and then she yeah. almost gets like assaulted Have, basically yeah, gets surprised and... i'm like are you stupid man like come on yeah i actually like that part for his character because it makes him look like kind of a scumbag and it was like oh yeah we're getting something with him and it's that schrader a... it's like schrader kind of characterization there's never like just one clear-cut reading of it too and even with bickle we had like you know kind of racist and kind of arguably you know fascist qualities to him too so it's like kind of uh yeah morally complex kind of characters that trader loves to write yeah we um, want to have characters fit so well into our well how we view about society and stuff but it's like you know these characters mm -hmm. that even though we can see them as as sympathetic uh still having their own kind of you know being you know traumatized by the way they were raised their family mm -hmm. and their life uh and the country that let them down. I mean, it makes for a much more uh, engaging movie for sure too. It's I uh, think so. Yeah. When you watch something where it's like, I always talk about my woke exploitation canon, where it's like you watch a movie where the script was written by Twitter and the characters. It's like let's expel out how toxic this is. It's like I like that because it's so again because it's almost like exploitation filmmaking, but it's 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 different. It's it makes for a different experience, and I think like uh, threading that needle as a as a writer in film, I think is kind of important. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So um, Christopher Chris Christopherson was originally set to star as Rain, but sadly had to drop out. David Carradine was also considered for the role. That would have been interesting. Watch out, guys! <laughs> and the film was I shot. Love Derek. He would work <laughs> yeah. well in David Carradine. I love yeah, him but... in uh, Death Wish, or sorry, uh, not Death Wish, uh, uh, Death Bill. Race. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. So. Um, the yeah. film was shot in San Antonio, Texas, so the Alamo City. Uh, including the brothel scene in Juarez at the end too, so they didn't actually film it in Mexico. And a director, John Milius, turned it down because it was too too dark. Uh, director John John Flynn wanted to be a vehicle, as I mentioned, to make Devane a big star, but it was a breakout film for uh, Tommy Tommy Lee Jones instead. Uh, director John Flynn also commented on the garbage disposal scene, which we kind of talked about already uh, via McGill. Uh, the producer. Uh, Lawrence Gordon told me to shoot the garbage disposal scene like open heart surgery, make it as bloody, bloody as I possibly could. So I did when we, we submitted uh, Rolling Thunder to the MPAA, the Motion Picture Association of America, for a rating. We expected deep cuts, but the censors passed and cut one of the most violent movies in the history of film. And it was giving an R rating, which I don't know, like it didn't really seem that graphic, that scene. But um, yeah. And then the studio uh, balked at its violence, having just seen the latest Dirty Harry film, The Enforcer 2. Um, so they they said the most violent sneak reaction of uh, recent years, the audience actually got up and tried to physically abuse the uh, studio personnel present among them. So kind of just interesting to think about that, too. You know, how are uh, maybe, you know, millennials and 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 our gener and Gen X is kind of desensitized to all this violence now because we've seen, you know, things like Mandy, which is a lot more violent. And, you know, back in the 70s, I wonder how they would have dealt with that, um, too. Um, he hired uh, Fox. Hired, Fox hired a psychiatrist to view it to understand why it was so disturbing to audiences. Too, they determined that it was like a symbolic castration. So, seeing it as it incited a negative reaction akin to the sneak of the original Exorcist film, home is supposed to be the place where everyone feels safest. Uh, when people are reminded that the home is vulnerable, when, which we all know it is, that's that feels disturbing too. So that's why a lot of people were kind of freaked out by uh, the scene where he gets robbed at home. Um, 
Yeah, so unfortunately, I think that's kind of a downside with the Hispanic character portrayal. They're kind of often portrayed as sleazy or ruthless outlaws who kill women and children and quite problematic too. And I think it's a film about masculinity, so the male characters are the focus too. Although, as you said, yeah. John, too, Linda kind of gets a little bit of focus too, maybe not on problematically. And but... in the whorehouse too, these women are like traumatized by this violence and are running yeah. out naked for their lives. Uh, and we see, of course, the, the Mexican women as well too are... Uh, have to kind of take this up as a you know a way to live and uh, yeah you know, they don't so have that... an option you know yeah exactly um also kind of a little bit of a note because i was talking about the song how it reminded me of like john denver well i didn't realize danny <laughs> brooks who i think was a singer guitarist who did the song um was the background singer and a guitarist for john denver he worked with john denver so that's why you get that kind of same vibe because it's the same guitar work um and same instrumentals as uh as john denver so i mean also the song san antone features i think also in uh the ninth configuration as well too so kind of fun that it's in uh, both those movies uh as yeah well. i feel i felt like i had heard it before but i wasn't sure where i'd heard it but it it brought back some <laughs> memories when i heard it um yeah and uh so kind of fun fact uh american international pictures that's uh, john corman's bargain basement uh released the film without cuts and made a fortune and the contemporary reviews of the film were pretty good uh but the violence was criticized uh but due to its release it was not huge at the box office so our boy uh, roger ebert described it as a, a very good very scary drama that was ignored by the public public at the box office gene seskel also liked the film and included in his top 10 list for 1977 uh quentin tarantino as we said loved the movie so much uh he called it kick-ass nirvana and put in his top 10 favorite films of all time which i think is maybe going a bit too far uh eli roth also loves it too he did a little snippet on it and his big influence for his movie cabin fever also uh bruce springsteen loves this movie uh film influenced his 1978 album darkness on the edge of town which is an album about alienation losing getting hurt trying to make sense of the world too some kind of themes that are kind of recurrent here too yeah um did you guys have any other comments about the films or anything to mention I do want to mention, actually, I think William Devane and um, and Tommy Lee Jones were yeah. together in the space. Uh, we were talking Clint Eastwood earlier. Space Cowboys, space Cowboys right. Yeah, I remember that. Together, so. Reunited, you know, after many years. It's funny because I like, wanted to like... ask uh, you guys if anyone had seen uh, what seems to be director John Flynn's second most popular movie. Uh, Rolling Thunder is obviously his most popular film that he made, but uh seems like there are a lot of people who like brain scan from 1994 yeah. <laughs> have you guys seen I, I, brain scan I, I, I never watched that one no, i haven't it seen it really no good? but uh oh my yeah. i mean i think I, I think is is that with uh who, who's the kid in that movie uh it's edward furlong yes i have seen oh, it it's, furlong. <laughs> it's very it's not a good movie but i think it's a very funny movie the premise is. is what if a cd-rom summoned beetlejuice <laughs> like that's yeah. it's kind of like a video drone style movie yeah as well but uh, i mean it's not a great movie the but trickster. i the trickster <laughs> is the name of the character and i think it is very funny as a bad film so uh, you could not ask for a the tagline a more is it uh, 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 an, like, an interactive trip to hell <laughs> yeah it, but you could not ask for a movie that is more different than rolling thunder yeah. uh obviously he didn't go from rolling thunder to brain scan but when i looked up john flynn i was like oh i have seen another one of his movies and it's that weird cd-rom beetlejuice one <laughs> he also directed out for justice one of the great steven seagal films as well too, uh, yes true yeah um yeah interesting, interesting yeah uh, yeah and uh, uh yeah yeah, so I, I want to check those out. I haven't seen Brain Scan, so I'm definitely wanting to get into that because uh, I mean it's ridiculous. Like Do not yeah. go in expecting quality. 
<laughs> all right. Well, anything else you guys anything you want to mention, Simon? I think we covered I covered all my points uh, here. I think I, I think I yeah, I I get I I I touched on all my notes here. Um all right. Well, I guess we'll dive into our ratings. So obviously I was a big I know you guys probably didn't love it as much as I did, but uh glad you guys tuned into it and uh five out of five for me. I, I mean I'm team Tarantino with this. Uh, I thought it was a lot of fun. I love, you know, the kind of character study. I love watching. I mean, I, I kind of feel like next time I want to watch it side by side, maybe with Taxi Driver, just to think about the two films together. But again, they're kind of two different uh, siblings, you know. I um, mean, we say that they're different films, but I was reading that there are a lot of connections between mm-hmm. them, like the characters being mentioned in each other's films. And I think yeah, the I think character there's a Traps clip. Pickle at one new, point was yeah, supposed to even clipping, appear. Yeah as a secondary wow. character in Rolling Thunder. So it, Taxi Driver's Cinematic Universe. Guess, what, exactly. So there are a lot of connections. <laughs> I don't think it's unfair to compare <laughs> the two. Don't know no Iris. Don't know no Iris. America's just filled with these superheroes who are just <laughs> twisted guys who killed a kid in Vietnam. You know, they're just fucked up because of it. Yeah, yeah so five out of five yeah. for me. What would you What would you give it, John? Uh, yeah, I, you know, first of all, I mean, again, because this is like a back from Nam movie, um, really great entry, obviously, to the back to Nam kind of, I don't know, subgenre of films, post Vietnam films, exploring the themes of men and masculinity and, and society, American society after Vietnam, its impacts in America and the world itself. So work works well there. I, I like this movie quite a bit. Again, I couldn't help but just be like kind of comparing it to Taxi Driver. And like, I didn't expect this to be a lot kind of slower paced. It actually was, uh, I found parts of this to be a bit of a slog. And again, I wasn't a huge fan of William doing it. I just mm-hmm. didn't really capture me the same way. Um, I did like, of course, the ending is quite thrilling. And uh, I, I liked uh, some of the spots, especially the p- moments between him and Linda, I thought were pretty fun. Um but yeah, I, w- I wasn't too into it. I think maybe I would want to maybe revisit it, you know, maybe give it more of a chance. I gave it a three out of five. I did I did like it. Um, and I think I'm definitely coming lo- below the consensus if my letterbox is anything. Uh, just a slew of five out of fives. And I'm like, I, I didn't see it myself. But I-, <laughs> I-, I'd- I would check it out again. But I would say I had a, had a good time watching it overall. 3.5 out of 5. Uh, I filed this under very good, but not great. Uh, and again, my main complaint is like, I just wanted more out of it. I liked what it was doing. I just wish it went bigger more often. Mm. Um, But as like, you know, a 70s revenge thriller with a really nice grimy aesthetic, you know, nothing in the movie looks clean. You you can feel that grime when you watch it. Yeah, everything they, the rooms dirty all look dusty and dirty and <laughs> yeah, smoky. It, it looks like it looked like a grandparents house, didn't it? Like that living room, you know? <laughs> uh, so I, I loved the aesthetic. I, I wanted to see those villains get their just desserts. So it was really effective in that way. Um, but, uh, you know, the the main character kind of left me cold. And I just wish that it had like gone even bigger with the grindhouse yeah. things, especially finding out that we were deprived of what I was what I was looking for. It's not just that that version doesn't exist. It did exist. And then they they reined it in. They pulled it back. Mm-hmm. I think that was a mistake. Conservative audiences. <laughs> what about you, Simon? Um, I'm going to give a three out of five. I could mm-hmm. be convinced three and a half out of five, but it's really slow. Mm-hmm. And like like McGill just said, I wish they went bigger more often. Um, I like the movie. Um, I just uh, I'm not crazy about it because it's slow. Um, but you know what? I recommend it to anybody for sure. Hey, I fully so, see why Tarantino loves it. I'll say that. Yeah. Like, there's, <laughs> it's, there's it's the best no film mystery. I've ever seen my entire life. It, it's all. 
It's also because, <laughs> you know, Taxi Driver by Martin Scorsese has a much more flourish to it. It's a much more cinematic film, more painterly. And this one, mm. you know, John Flynn's a little, he's pretty, pretty by the, by the bones. It feels a little bit more basic. Bare, like, bare he's bones, not, yeah. There's some good scenes in it, but it's, he's, I don't think visually he's as great a filmmaker, but I think to an extent he kind of lets you kind of sit in with the kind of how dark it is and muddled it is a little bit more. So I think it kind of works to that degree as well, too. Mm. Um, so that's why I think maybe revisiting it would be, would be something, so. Yeah, so that, I mean that's not a bad uh, squirrel together. So combined, it's about a three point five out of five, which is still nice. good. Uh, so if you want to watch it, you can watch it for free on Tubi. It's on Tubi, and uh, With yeah, milk ads. <laughs> yeah, you watch you watch Star Wars, OG Star Wars, and uh, and uh, Rolling Thunder back to back. So yeah, that's that ties up my. I'd like to put in a disclaimer, though. Uh, we are not sponsored by Tubi as much as we mentioned them. Oh, <laughs> definitely, cinef- definitely true not. True cinephile experience, yeah. Yeah, I just, oh, yeah definitely not. But um, lots of good stuff on Tubi. Next week, uh, we're diving back into the Ridley Scott series, right, John? I think we're doing, um, what's it called? Somebody uh, Watching Over Me? Someone to Watch Over Me. I always yes. mix it. It's like, someone's watching me, someone to watch over me. I, yeah. From what I read, I've never seen someone someone to watch over me. But it plot, plot framework, it might as well be somebody's watching me or whatever it's about like uh um i, I think a woman who ex- who witnessed this violence who now is like being victimized or maybe i'm getting that totally wrong but mm. really scott film haven't seen it um i think lorraine brack was in it and a few other folk i want to check oh, that great. one out so kind of a, that'll be a very treasure <laughs> yeah maybe it's a very treasure yeah I, have, I, have, I haven't seen it before so it'd be kind of cool to check out and i got a canon one coming up too i'll be doing back to the future one of my favorites so might, might have heard of it you know <laughs> might have heard of it yeah <laughs> save the clock tower yes yeah, so we'll be back uh, with that one at, at some point soon great well thanks uh so much guys for coming on thanks to simon and mcgill for joining us we'll be back thanks strong next... i know oh, we should... anything you guys want to plug stores. as well too like mcgill simon anything you guys want to mention uh, uh, i just want to give a shout out to julie because she's been listening to all the podcasts so uh, oh thanks julie <laughs> Plus one member. Yeah, she's well, she's welcome on too. It's always nice to have more women on the show too. So oh, she's like most of the movies I do too. I'd love to have her on sometime. Yeah, let it, let us know. We're, we're very happy for you. White bearded man canon that we have on this pod all the time. Like, here's the, <laughs> let's talk about feminism in this movie, folks. You know, you're really yeah. getting the, the authentic experience there. Yeah. I'll plug yeah, the yeah. usual stuff. Feel free to follow me on Letterboxd, McGill Foot. Uh, McGillfoot.com is my demo reel, M A G I L L F O O T E.com, if you want to see some of my work there. The uh, true crime podcast that I produce is The Trail Went Cold, trailwentcold.com. And since I mentioned it before as well, the back row.com, if you want to read some old movie <laughs> writings from Curtis and myself yeah, and a bunch Stedler's of our friends. DVD pick of the week. Yeah, yes, Run Stedler's DVD pick of the week is still up there. And you can also find Robin Warder's uh, column, Robin's Underrated Gems, about Rolling Thunder, one of our earliest write ups uh, on that site. Well, we'll leave it there, and thanks again, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. USA.